0: Well, welcome. We are continuing our series on the Biblical and Reformed Doctrine of Worship. We're now in our fourth uh, series, I guess our fourth lesson in this series. And basically, I want to remind you guys, we're taking eight to ten weeks to talk about Biblical and Reformed Worship. As I've said several times before, Biblical, because we're going to be looking at the Scriptures, but also Reformed, because... That's the confession of our church. And we want to uh, also look at the Reformed confessions and see what the Reformers held regarding the doctrine of worship. And so we'll be looking at these two things as our guide to kind of figure these things out. So our goal essentially is to set forth the Reformed doctrine of worship and to demonstrate how it is supported by Scripture and vice versa. We want to demonstrate ultimately why we do what we do here at Christ Reformed Baptist Church and what basis, on what basis do we do these things. And so, as I mentioned, we are in part four of this series. And yeah, unfortunately, a lot of you students will be gone when we really get into the good stuff. But, uh, well, some of you will be here. But, yeah. So just by way of review, kind of give you the context of where we're at today. We're in the midst of answering the question, how do we study the issue? And as I've said before, my goal is not just to give you a bunch of information. I can do that if you want. I can just pour things into you and say, this is what we believe. This is what the scriptures say. But I want to do more than that. I want to teach you how to study and approach this issue and other issues on your own, should you want to look at the Scriptures, what the Scriptures teach in this or in another area. So, we're talking about more of, in these few weeks, how it is that we study this question. How do we even approach the issue? And I've argued that we're taking predominantly a theological approach. We're comparing it with the whole of Scripture. We're comparing Scripture with Scripture. We're making deductions. And we're looking at the entire whole counsel of God. We're not just looking at texts that say, worship in the text, explicitly. We're not doing word studies. We are going to do that, but we're also just looking at it from a broader perspective as well, uh, noting how it's connected to all these other things in Scripture. I made the argument a few weeks ago, it's like a sweater, right? It's interwoven and you pull on one string and the whole sweater comes unraveled. Well, I think ultimately in the doctrine of worship, this is what we see as well. It is connected to all sorts of other things in Scripture. And we've got to recognize that when we approach this issue. So last week, we talked about how the doctrine of worship is connected with our doctrine of Scripture. It should be kind of obvious, right? Do we take Scripture plus tradition, like the Roman Catholic Church, um, so that tr- human tradition has equal weight with Scripture? Or do we confess Scripture alone is our guide when we approach worship? And that, that'll change where you go. If if you have a, a deficient doctrine of Scripture, it's going to lead to a deficient doctrine of worship. And so we talked about how we must first and foremost, you know, kind of get our ducks in a row on what we believe and confess regarding the doctrine of Scripture before we can ever approach the doctrine of worship. And from that, we also moved to consider the doctrine of worship in light of the nature and character of God. Who is the God that we worship? Who is the God who has revealed Himself in Scripture? That, the answer to that question is going to affect our doctrine of worship. And so, to get more specifically here, we talked about 2 Timothy 3.16, that all Scripture is sufficient, it can equip men for every good work. We talked about the doctrine of sola scriptura, Everything that God requires of us is given to us in Scripture. We noted that true worship rests in what God has revealed. And we closed this section essentially talking about the Heidelberg Catechism and asking the question, are we wiser than God? It's a phrase that the Heidelberg Catechism uses when it's talking about worship, specifically as it talked about worship in relation to the making of images. Well, we need to put a visual stimulus, a statue in front of the people of God because those who can't read or those who aren't uh, old enough to read, they, 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 they need to see and identify something with God. And, and the Heideberg Catechism says, no, we're not wiser than God. We can't just make things up on our own as if we know what will lead people into faithfulness, and God doesn't. The ultimate question is, do we believe what Scripture has said? Do we worship according to how it makes us feel, or how it seems to work in the world, or do we trust His Word and worship Him according to how He has instructed us? This is the doctrine of Scripture in relation to the doctrine of worship. And then we also consider the doctrine of worship in light of who God is. Our understanding of the nature of God determines our worship as well. We looked at the two passages in the Old Testament about God forbidding Israel to make images of Him. And what was the reason behind that? God says, "...because you didn't see Me when I revealed Myself to you. You saw no form. I am a spirit." You can't make an image of a spirit." And so he says, because of who I am, this is how you ought to worship. And we noted that by not understanding who God is, in His character, in His uh, nature, we can have a deficient theology of worship, and we can offer worship that is idolatrous. So that's review. I'll take questions in a second. But our plan for today is to continue and wrap up the doctrine of worship in light of who God is. And then we'll move to consider the doctrine of worship in light of who we are. We've got to understand ourselves as well. We've got to understand scripture. We've got to understand God. We've got to understand ourselves. Who we are as sinners in need of sustaining grace. If we're going to have a proper doctrine of worship. And then this is what we'll jump into next week, but the doctrine of worship in light of the gospel. This is where we're going. Any questions so far? That's a long introduction and review, I know. But, several of you weren't here last week. Just want to make sure everybody's on the same page. Any questions before we move forward? Any thoughts from last week? Don't bring up images of Christ again, okay? Well, that's... We'll talk about that. We're getting there, okay? All right, let's continue talking about how our worship is directly related to our doctrine of God. I mentioned this last week, I'm going to just cover it briefly again. Consider the Muslim God, Allah. A God who demands total submission at the edge of the sword. A God who hates his enemies and shows absolutely no mercy, no love towards them at all. And I argued that it makes sense why Muslims prostrate themselves in worship, bow repeatedly, follow very strict guidelines for worship, take their shoes off, all of that stuff. It flows out of their understanding of who God is. Their God, that is. The false God. And then I've talked about as well, Jesus is your boyfriend. The popular Jesus. The therapeutic Jesus. The one who's never criticizes you, he's never judgmental, he's always positive, he's your best friend, he's here to help you have a better life, he's here to support you and stand by you no matter what. The popular view of Jesus today is kind of like a significant other, there to help you live life to the fullest. Thus it makes sense, having this view of God, that we would approach him casually in worship, in ways that are like hanging out with an old friend. These are kind of two extremes. Fear of a God who doesn't show mercy, but uh, on the other end of the perspective a God, really robbed of holiness and reverence and awe and the fear of God, because He's just so infatuated with us, because we're the best. And so you have very very strict worship and you have casuals just show up and hang out and you know hang out around the campfire with Jesus our friend and so I I use that to show like okay this our view of God affects how we worship so we turn to the confession and noted its chapter on worship that it defines, when it's talking about worship, that it defines some characteristics, attributes of God, leading into the paragraph of how we are to properly worship Him. He is a God who has lordship and sovereignty over all. And He is just, and He is good, and He does good to all. And therefore, this is how you to worship Him. Fear, love, praise, called upon, trusted and served. So He's Lord and Sovereign overall, but He's also good. This isn't the God of Islam demanding total submission, but neither is this Jesus as your boyfriend. He's Lord and Sovereign, but He's also good. And those, both of those things are to guide us into the proper worship of God. We're to consider His nature and His attributes when we approach the doctrine of worship. And so in light of this, the confession says this, because of who God is, let's respond with godly fear. This is a fear of the Lord. And I close with this question, did you ever consider worship in relation to the fear of the Lord? I ask this because the prevailing notion in our society is that Jesus is your boyfriend kind of thing. right? God's just so in love with us. We're, we're just so awesome. And, you know, God wants us to love him, and so he's our best friend. And oftentimes, what gets left, um, left by the wayside here is the biblical notion of the fear of the Lord. We note it from Psalm 2 Serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling. And this is in direct relation to the Son, the Messiah. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and ye perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. In fact, just a side note here, our reading of the law this morning comes from Revelation 3, where Jesus Christ, the risen Christ, speaks to a New Testament church, Laodicea, and He indicts them for their sin. It's a, it's a notion that often is forgotten in our day, that even the risen Christ, speaking to a redeemed congregation, says to them, repent or I'm going to come and I'm going to remove your lampstand. I'm going to do this and do that. We must not forget the importance of the fear of the Lord when we approach the doctrine of worship. Of course we ask, is this just the Old Testament? And then we move to Hebrews 12 where we see the same thing. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And We noted that literally reverence means fear. It means awe. And it's talking about acceptable worship, but also worship that is in the right spirit. And the right spirit is the fear of the Lord. All of that, and we're just now caught up on what we talked about last week. Sorry about that. So moving on from this, the Confessions Doctrine of God also calls us to respond with love and praise. This is worship that stems from the heart. Because He is good to all, it calls us to respond to call upon Him and trust Him. Worship is to be prayerful, trusting in His Word and His promises because He is sovereign. The notion here is that we understand our dependence upon Him. We call upon Him because we need Him. We trust Him because we don't have the answers. And He is sovereign and Lord. And we are called to place our ultimate trust in Him. And the confession also calls us to serve Him with the heart, all the heart and soul. We are to give ourselves fully to worship. Give our entire beings in the worship of God. It isn't just something else that we do in life as if, okay... Worship, got that off the list. Now let's move towards Bible reading, evangelism, discipleship. Worship is, as I've continually argued, the center of the Christian life. It's the center of the church. Everything else in your Christian life, everything else in the church is going to flow out of your worship and our worship. This is how we are to respond in light of who God is. Continuing on this, God is sovereign Lord over all. So our view of the sovereignty of God will affect our worship. Consider that more in just a moment. Since He is sovereign and we are to trust Him, how does He regulate our worship? Through the scriptures. Because God is sovereign, we are not. Jesus Christ is sovereign over His church. How then does He exercise His sovereignty over His church? Through the Scriptures. I put in parentheses here that the Reformers saw the Pope as the Antichrist because he usurped Christ's authority here in relation to His sovereignty over the church. The the Pope is one who stands up and says, I'm the vicar of Christ on earth, right? I carry Christ's authority on earth. I have the authority of interpretation, I have the authority, ultimate authority of infallibility, of excommunication. And the reformers said, You are usurping Christ's sovereignty over his church. How does Christ exercise His sovereignty? Through the Scriptures, not through a man. Ultimately. But before we turn to who we are, I want to talk also briefly about there's something even more fundamental than just the character and nature of God, which we've already considered. But just something as basic as the creature-creator- Creator-creature distinction. That there is a difference between us and God. That seems kind of obvious, right? But consider Isaiah 55. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. What I just want to draw your attention to is that this understanding that God is both qualitatively and quantitatively different than us. And it's important to keep this in mind in worship. Who would like to define or explain those differences there? Quantitative and qualitative. One of the computer science guys. What does it mean to say that God is qualitatively different than us? No, no, let's start with the other one. (laughs) What does it mean to say God is quantitatively different than than us? Exactly. But is God just bigger than us? Is He just a bigger man? Is He like Superman? No. He is bigger than us. But He's also qualitatively different than us. He's different than us. He's not just a bigger man. He's a different being altogether. So often in our society, it's the man upstairs, right? The God who's just a bigger man than us. He's a lot like us. He's just got more power and a, and a better a better seat, a better view. <laughs> but the Scriptures teach that He's both bigger and different than us. And so, I wanted to look briefly at Psalm 50. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. So I'm not going to read the whole thing, but... I want to just briefly break down how important this is. In Psalm 50, the first four verses begin by recalling God's attributes. He's the mighty one, God, the Lord. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, he shines forth. He's not silent, but before him is a devouring fire. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. So these are kind of recalling his attributes, who he is. But then, he moves on here, beginning verse 7, Hear my people, and I will speak. He's talking to Israel. But he moves down in verse um, 12, actually. I put verse 14, but it's verse 12. He starts to indict them for their empty worship. Actually, he starts even before that. Verse 8, actually. He starts to indict them for their empty worship. And he calls upon them, in verses 14 and 15, to offer worship with the right spirit. With thanksgiving, calling upon his name. But notice he turns to indict the wicked then, in verse 16. And he notes here, What right have you to recite my statutes, or to take my covenant on your lips? He's saying, okay, here's some people who are claiming to speak for me, who were claiming to be followers of God, who were claiming to worship me, who were taking my name and perverting it. And he goes down in verse 21. He finally says, these things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one just like yourself. You thought I was just like you. So my point in bringing this up is that failing to understand that God is different than us, that we're a creature, He's a creator, can lead to false worship. And that's what God indicts these people for here in Psalm 50. You thought that I was just like you. That's why you're offering false worship. That's why you're not offering worship with the right spirit. That's why you're taking my name upon um, your lips and perverting it because you thought I was just like you. But I'm not just like you. The implication being. So not only do we have to keep in mind the attributes of God, but we also have to keep in mind that He is very, very different than us. And we may think something's a great idea. We may think that this person particular type of worship will please God and will work. But we must remember that we're not like God and that we are dependent upon His revelation um, to guide us into pure and true worship. So the conclusion here is in this study, which we're just getting started on, (laughs) we're going to bring all of our conclusions about worship back to the doctrine of of God. We've got to look at everything in relation to who God is, including worship styles, music, liturgy, elements of worship, even the songs that we sing. All of these things have relation to our doctrine of who God is. And we must ask, are our practices, along with the manner in which we do them, consistent with a God who is holy, sanctified, set apart, distinct from the world, sovereign, powerful, loving, gracious, and just? That's the big picture here. Any questions or comments, thoughts, rebukes? Rebuttals? You guys are a quiet group this morning. Anything? See, I always hear about where you guys disagree, like on Tuesday or Wednesday the following week. So um, I'm just saying, here's your chance. <laughs> you said this, Pastor Nathan, but we were talking about this that night. Nathan,
1: Um I mean, you talk about the fear of the Lord a lot in yeah. worship, well, there are—I mean, I'm pretty sure there are other passages that talk about different uh, aspects of approaching worship. What makes you emphasize that more than others?
0: Yeah, we're we're going to get into that specifically, yeah. but um, you're right. That's a very legitimate question. There's a lot <laughs> about worship in uh, relation to joy. There's a lot of talk about joy and celebration, particularly in the Psalms. How do we balance that with godly fear, the fear of the Lord? Is joy to take precedence over fear or fear over joy? That's a very legitimate question. What we're going to do is we're going to define biblical joy and biblical fear. And I'm going to argue that... um, So often in our society, we think of of joy, which uh, in ways that are inconsistent with the biblical notion of joy. Like I got real excited the other night watching the Braves game, you know, and I was ready to jump up and holler or whatever. Um, is, is that biblical joy? A lot of times, our society we assume that it is, um, but I'm going to challenge that notion. That joy is something deeper. Um, that, that there's the joy is to be tempered with reverence. But again, our reverence is to be tempered with joy. We don't want church to be a funeral service. There's no doubt about that. And that's something us reformers can easily fall into because um, we're afraid of the excesses. But so we're going to tackle that more specifically. Great question, Chris. Would it also
1: be- he ought to be feared, loved, etc. in that order. Is that why you're emphasizing it also? There's a certain confessional flow, um, maybe even a logical flow in scripture, that first we have to understand, fear God, um, before we can really truly understand him yeah. in true in, in worship or in adoration yeah. of his, <clears throat> and his yeah. sacrifice or his provisions or his goodness or his testimony
0: that's a great point. You're absolutely right. There are things. Joy comes after reconciliation. Right? We're joyful because we're forgiven. We're friends of God. We're children of God. We have this great redemption. That comes after the fear of the Lord. Right? The understanding that, oh my goodness, I'm not God. And not only am I not God, but I've sinned against Him and He's really, really angry. That's a fear that leads so you're right, there's a progression there, and it's very true in our worship as well. We must come humbly and reverent before we then receive that welcome word of forgiveness and reconciliation that we can respond in joy.
1: It's the same in the garden. I mean, what, is, what is the first part that Adam and Eve feel after the after the fall, after the disobedience, they hide. They hide yeah. that of fear. Yeah. And then God gives them, life. He gives them a covenant. He gives them, you know, yes, you did wrong, but I'm going to make a provision. Yep,
0: Absolutely. In fact, um, Chris, you've never been to one of our worship services, but this is why our liturgy is the way that it is. You know, We have guilt, grace, and gratitude. We have a reading of the law. We have a confession of sin before we have the reading of the gospel. And this, and as I'm going to argue, our liturgy, the way it's structured, the way it is, because we're trying to depict the Christian life in all of its phases. There's a progress in the Christian life. There's a revelation of who God is that calls us to acknowledge Him, right? And there's a response, Lord, here I am. Then there's, okay, now that I know there's a God, there's a God who is holy. And I've broken His law. Oh, I need to confess. But after that we have, oh, okay, you've confessed, here's the gospel. And so I can hear the gospel and have an assurance of pardon. And then I can respond with joyful song and give And after that, I sit to be instructed. Now that I've been forgiven, I can be instructed by the preaching of the Word. And now that I've been instructed by the preaching of the Word, I need God's blessing, the benediction, to send me out, so that I may live lives that are pleasing Him. So our our worship, our liturgy in this church, are structured after the Gospel, following exactly what, what... Chris was just saying there in the sense that there is a logical order and that if we overemphasize one of those aspects, overemphasize joy or forgiveness and have no place for confession or overemphasize the response of gratitude and have no place for instruction, then we're going to be imbalanced in our Christian life. And our worship is a picture of what our Christian life is going to be. We want worship that is balanced, so that we have Christian life that is balanced, and so that we give adequate time to all of the aspects of the Christian life and the plan of the gospel, and not just jump on one thing over the other. So, great point, Chris. Kim, did you have? Pretty much summed it up. Okay, cool. All right, <laughs> all right. Let's move quickly. We've got ten minutes. The doctrine of worship in relation to the doctrine of sin, and. Ah, man, it kills me that so many of our Arminian friends are out this morning. <laughs> Did I just say that? On I'll have to edit the audio on that um, for, the, for the website. But the question is, what do we believe about total depravity? And I want to argue that there is a reason why Arminian free will worship services look much different than those in the Reformed tradition. And it's not just accidental, it's not just on the surface level. My question to you was, how so? How how are our worship services different? I mean, just think about if you've been to a revival service with altar calls and with stirring music and with sentimentality, I'm going to argue this flows out of all these other things, of, of course, but most specifically, perhaps, their understanding of sin and how it affects us. We have a different understanding of what the Scriptures say about human sinfulness. And because of this, our worship looks a whole lot different. John Calvin said, our hearts are like idle factories, that even after conversion, we naturally gravitate towards idolatry. Even in the worship of God, even people redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, people who have, are filled with the Spirit and are true believers, still gravitate towards idolatry. And if you recoil at that, just let me encourage you to look in your own life. Look into your own heart if you're honest with yourself. Consider your own struggles with sin. Whatever sin that may be. Consider the sin in your life that you have such a difficult time battling. Whether it be anger, whether it be lust, whether it be covetousness, love of pleasure, laziness, the sin that constantly you, you, you constantly fall back in. It's no different with idolatry our hearts gravitate naturally because we are children of Adam towards perverting the worship of God which is why we need the scriptures just like we need the scriptures in the other parts of our life well what you're doing is wrong it's destructive how do I know this because of the word of God the same with our worship. How do we know that worship is idolatrous? Because of the Word of God. Now, I'm going to close with this, but I want to bring up the first worship war. The offering of Cain. To illustrate my point. In the course of time, Genesis 4, 3-8, through Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock, and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. I want to ask you, why was Abel's offering accepted, but Cain's wasn't? Was there an verse or an explicit word from the Lord that forbid the offering of produce, or that instructed the offering of a lamb? Well, no, not to our knowledge. So why was Cain's offering rejected, but, got, but Abel's was accepted? Come on, guys. Any thoughts? If you're wrong, it's okay. Have you ever thought about it, Kyle? I mean, it
1: seems like Abel brought the best of what he had.
0: Okay. The Abel, brought, Abel, Abel brought the best of what he had. Um, Possibly. I'm gonna argue differently, but that's a good good thought, Josh. Was doing was
1: doing
0: Possibly, but we're not really told. Explicitly. Think theologically. Come on. Theologically. Sophie. Ah, okay. You're you're on the right track here. <laughs> a bloodless offering of Cain demonstrated he did not see himself in need of atonement. He didn't see himself as a sinner. I'm going to argue that, based upon the subsequent details in the Cain and Abel story and in new revelation, further revelation. Yes, Courtney, I'm scared. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. Yes, through the uh, the, uh, the covering of skins, Adam and Eve at the garden. But we got to remember that this is written. This is written to ancient Israel. Moses wrote Genesis to instruct the children of Israel coming out of Egypt. So they are reading this with the lens of the sacrificial system. The
1: absolutely.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So you're saying he should have known that the blood I'm arguing that Cain was a Pelagian. He was the first Pelagian, which it... <laughs> denial the denial of original sin in a sense he was approaching God as if he did not need atonement as if he had not sinned against God as if he could just give offerings to his creator here you go creator Abel understood without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins if I'm going to approach God there has got to be a sacrifice. Per Adam and Eve being clothed with animal skins when they are cast out of the garden.
1: I mean there's I mean, we even say that before this, when God instituted a sacrificial system, he also instituted a praise offering or a first fruit offering, but it was not it's not the same. And even in the Canaanite Abel story, that that distinction was clearly meant from a, from a salvation understanding of what God had promised and provided even in the garden, and even to his parents, they still missed the mark. Yeah. He, still, he, he gave maybe a praise offering, or a thanks offering, but no substitutionary
0: offering. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And it goes back to what you said before. The praise and thanks offering flows out of an atonement and a forgiveness offering. Or an atonement covering. To get those things out of order is again to misunderstand who we are and who God is, and that we can't approach Him equal as equals on our own terms, as if we have not sinned against Him.
1: Some people would consider what we're saying is speculation, but I, I mean, we would say it's it's somewhat it's descriptive there in, in the narrative Genesis yeah. one two the third through three narrative.
0: Yep, exactly, and just. I've got like eight more slides on this particular point, which we'll get to next week. So it's not my only evidence, all right. I just want to show that there is a connect. I'm trying to show there's a connection between how we approach God in worship, like Cain did, and our understanding of who we are and our indebtedness to Him. Yes, Court. But the wasn't set up before it wasn't officially set up, but there was still offering of sacrifices. For example, Abraham offered sacrifices. Um, others in the Old Testament, there were sacrifices offered. Um, it, it, it was understood by the people of God that there needed to be an atoning sacrifice in order to approach and please God, because of human sinfulness. So, Noah sacrificed as well. Alright, so by not understanding his sin or the holiness of God... He didn't have the scriptures yet, so we can't argue that we have the scriptures. But by not understanding these two things, Cain had a deficient theology of worship, and his worship was not accepted. All right, that's where we have to end today. Are there any closing comments, or questions, or thoughts? Kim, thirty seconds. (laughs) That is a can of worms. (laughs) Because the animal sacrifice is a type. A type that points to the sacrifice of Christ. There is a way in which, a sense in which, just the mere ritual was, in a sense, obedience to God. But what do we see in Psalm 50, right? You're bringing these things to me, and I'm not happy because your heart's not right. And he says in many places throughout the Old Testament, I'm tired of your burnt offerings. I'm tired of your sacrifices because they come from an unbelieving, well, yeah. hateful heart. Some, some, so it, without a doubt, there's both. To be ultimately accepted, without a doubt. so let's, uh, let's close in prayer. Our Lord, we do thank You for Your Word and that it rescues us from ourselves. We pray, Lord, that You would bring our minds and our hearts in conformity with Your Word and that You would lead us through our study in this series, into the right worship of you. Worship that is pleasing. Worship that is also uh, flows out of a right understanding of who you are and who we are and how you have spoken. Worship that adorns our God and brings you great glory in the eyes of others. We pray, Lord, that you would be with us even now as we turn to worship, as we turn to the gathering of your name, the observance of all your means of grace your blessing would be upon us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.